In Matthew 18, there's this unique moment in Jesus' teaching. It's unlike his parables. It's unlike an object lesson like when he said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. There's a, a little boy and the Greek word could describe like an infant, a baby. And he, according to the Mark 9 account of the same teaching, takes that baby boy in his arms and says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And he shares his heart for children, for his children, for the people of God in a larger context, it answered some of the questions in the surrounding chapters about God's heart towards Israel. His disciples asked this boneheaded question, who among us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And, and so Jesus, in order to just completely invert their thinking, just takes this baby boy in his arms and says, unless you turn and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Their thinking was completely, completely backwards. And so to turn their world upside down, he just took this this little boy said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. There are only three weekends a year where in our curriculum we'll deviate from the study plan of going book by book through the Bible and even one of those, it never deviates. Sometimes we'll even build it around. That's Easter. And then another session on Christmas. And this Sunday, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. So prepare to hear the very first topical sermon you've ever heard me preach. Sanctity of Human Life. It's something that our culture has completely forgotten, but it's something that the church can remind culture of. When I'm talking about human life, I'm talking about life from conception. Every moment until natural death, all of it, all of it, sacred. When we were studying Genesis 1, we opened up our series in Genesis 1, and the very first sermon in, in this series, we talked about how God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. And we focused in hard on the fact that God created us male and female. But I want to bring that same verse back, and I want, to op I want to direct our eyes to the ways in which it, way in which it opens, that God created us in his image. There's no other species of life on earth that has that distinction, created in the image of God, that every human life bears the image of our creator God, every human life. We are image bearers then of our God. The people who disagree with you politically on your most staunch and passionate viewpoints, those debate opponents are actually bearers of the image of God. Do you see? Every one of us bears the very image of God imbued with the imago dei, the image of God Human life from conception through natural death is sacred. That we would 
have God breathed life directly into us is profound and tremendous. Look in Matthew 18 as Jesus describes his heart for his children and teaches us about heaven with this little boy present right there. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be greater, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with, with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Isn't that fascinating? Some familiar teachings in this that we often quote in isolation, but to see them in their larger context, you see that it's about God's heart towards children, especially this teaching about leaving the 99 behind to go after the one that went astray. The most common application of this verse is to reach out to the apostate Christian who's been out of fellowship, out of church for a while, to leave behind the 99 and go after that one who's gone astray and bring them home. And that is a rightful application of this verse because it's about God's heart towards children. And if you're a child of God, you're a part of the church, that verse applies to you, absolutely. But did you notice, do you know what verse comes before and what verse comes after that phrase about leaving the 99 behind? Did you know, look, look at it, look at, look at verse 10. Here's the verse that comes before leaving behind the 99 to go after the one that's gone astray. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. And then look at verse 14. Here's the verse that comes after it. So it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. That's the verse that comes before. That's the verse that comes after. The verse before is about children. The verse that's after is about children. Therefore, the one about leaving the 99 behind to go after the one that's gone astray is about children. It's about God's children. Think on it. If one of my children goes missing, I was like, well, we still have the majority. <laughs> no, I will move heaven and earth to find my missing child. And when my missing child comes home, I will celebrate over that more than I would the fact that the others stayed in bed like they should have. See, it's about God's heart towards his children. That's why it rightfully applies to the homecoming of the apostate church member. But in the larger context, it's about God's heart toward children. It's about God's heart toward you. 
This is how God feels about his people. This is how God feels about human life. Think on the innocuous nature of taking the vine and the branches teaching literally, or one of the parables quite literally. If you didn't have ears to hear, you wouldn't hear what the Spirit was saying through the parables. But if you took those object lessons of Jesus' other teaching moments literally, the result was innocuous. Okay, Jesus is pretending to be a vine, and his disciples are pretending to be branches. Okay, I get it. All right, it's just random farming advice. Throw some seed here. Throw some seed here. This is the, I, don't know, I don't know what the hype is about this guy. If you take those literally, the result is somewhat innocuous. But this passage, when taken literally, this is not, this is not like when he referred to the widow giving her might, giving the, the, that small legal tender, it was all that she had, where he talked about what she did. It was not about the centurion's faith, which is the greatest faith that he had seen, greater even than all the people who had been born and raised under the teachings in the synagogue. This, this man who was raised by sun worshipers suddenly gets faith better than all the leaders of, of, of the synagogue did. It was, it was different from the widow's might. It was different from the centurion's faith. It was different from the parable of the sower. It was different from the vine and the branches teaching. This is a human being, a human child imbued with the Imago Dei, and God is saying, you must become like one of these or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Take that literally. And I think it's intentional on Jesus' part. There's actually some debate over this, believe it or not. But I believe this moment of God taking this child in his arms, teaching about heaven from the moment, I believe this unique teaching, it's not a parable, it's not an object lesson, because that's not an object, that's a person, that's a boy. I believe this is the, the scriptural basis for the belief that babies go to heaven when they die. This is where I come from in answering that question. This is God's heart toward children. And this child embodies that. Have you ever, have you ever looked back on like Christian writings from the 1800s? I was doing reading for, for something once and I, I was by, it was by an author in the 1800s who was a Christian and he spoke out in defense of slavery. Like even using like eisegeted scripture, taking scripture out of context and, and using it as a rationale. I threw the book across the room. Have you ever seen that? Look back on Christians of generations past when slavery was pervasive in our society and that they would excuse it or even justify it or stand idly by and say nothing about it and try to, try to pardon it, defending something that is obviously indefensible. I want to shout across the centuries. They're humans. What's wrong with you? I think future generations will look back on this generation of Christians in regard to abortion and say the same thing. They're humans. What's wrong with you? How could you stand idly by? These are human lives. These are human lives. Future generations will look back on us and with incredulity to our silence on this. And even if I were an atheist, I would call us out for our obvious, obvious inconsistency in ethics here. Revised Washington Standard 
I know, I know you don't want, I don't know you don't know what it is because I didn't know either. I looked it up. It's a traffic law. Let me begin by confessing, okay? There's no condescension from this pastor. Okay, I have violated traffic laws, and for that, I'm, I'm sorry. I confess that, all right? I'm a sinner, just like you, all right? But why does that law exist? 4661212 states that if you don't move over one lane while an officer is dealing with another driver on the side of the road, you get fined double the amount and you could use, lose your license for 60 days. It's a good law. Why? Because even if you violate it and no one's hurt, you've endangered an innocent human life. Even the possibility, even the chance that you might endanger a human life is enough to be punished legally. And every one of us agrees that that's ethically consistent. Even the possibility that a human life might be lost is punishable legally. What is wrong with us? There's no question that 100% of abortion procedures end a human life. Yes, human. What other species could the baby belong to? Okay, in my experience, humans produce humans. We all know this. We all know this. I do not believe that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That's a crock. Humans are humans from conception till natural death, imbued with the image of God, valued and beloved of God. You see Jesus here, written in red, articulate his heart towards his children. This is how God feels about children. This is how God feels about every baby that is aborted. We know this. And who are we to draw arbitrary lines and say everybody on this side of that line is a human fully fledged. Everybody on this side of that line, it's okay to kill them. I'm of the radical view that it's morally wrong to cut a baby into pieces. That's my radical view. Call me an abolitionist. I just believe that there's no scenario in which it's morally right to cut a baby into pieces or to dissolve a baby's body in saline solution, or to abandon a baby into a toilet. That's never a good thing, ever, ever. We know this. Yeah, 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 but what trimester? It doesn't matter what trimester. That is utterly irrelevant, and that is evil to draw a line. Think on it. What company do you keep historically if you're in the business of drawing lines and saying everyone on this side of the line can live, everyone on this side, this side of the line we can kill if we don't want them? Everybody on this side of the line, into the gas chambers. Do you see? Who are we to decide who's human and who isn't? We have watched on 3D ultrasounds babies, eight weeks gestation, recoil and cringe and draw back when a syringe is introduced into the womb for an amniocentesis or to administer something the baby needs. And that is well within the first trimester. The majority of abortions take place in that trimester, and we have watched them recoil in pain. God have mercy on us as a culture. We know that it's wrong. Wake up. Wake up. It's never okay. It's never okay. Yeah, but Jesse, you don't get to talk about this subject. Because you're a man. I don't know if you're white. You're something. (laughs) 
But either way, because you are the gender that you present as, you don't get to weigh in on this subject. What other things am I not allowed to talk about that are factually true? If you'll hear me teach mathematics, and that's true, if I'm able to speak truth in that sense, I'm able to speak truth in this sense too. Furthermore, I know exactly what it takes to raise a child. I know exactly five times over how expensive a child is, how having a child turns your whole world upside down, and it's the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced in this life next to salvation and marriage. I know this. I also know what it means to lose a child. I know what it means to see a baby die. I know this. I've seen this. And the only reason you're being defensive right now in your heart, my pro-choice friend, the only reason that you're sharpening your ad hominem attacks is because you don't want to face the hideous nature of the truth that you've championed. You see, my gender is a complete red herring. It has nothing whatsoever at all to do with the issue here. You know in your heart of hearts, this baby has a unique genotype that has never existed in the history of humanity and will never exist again. This baby has her own blood type. And if you were to give a blood transfusion from her mother to her, it could kill her. It would kill her. That she has her own blood type, her own genetic code that's never existed before. She is 100% human, differing from you, my pro-choice friend, only in the areas of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. And every one of us has variations in our size and our level of development and our environment, our degree of dependency. You and I both know that passage through the birth canal does not imbue someone with humanity and personhood. All right, I'm a C-section baby. Does that mean that you could abort me right now? Or what about my premature son, Asher? Was he, apparently, I mean, he was of gestational age where it would have been fair game to abort him. So why stop at that arbitrary line? Why not move it well past that? Why not move it into the age 21? I mean, like, do you see what we've done here? We have recommitted the exact same ethical era of genocidal maniacs historically past who thought they were championing something good. They were all deceived. They were lied to. And in a weird way, in a dark way, this whole atrocity is one big Demonic apologetic. There's no other explanation for the fact that brilliant people would fail to see what is so obvious. That otherwise very kind, good people would fail to see that this is murder. It is demonic deception. And it's nothing new. There's nothing progressive about it. We have laws on the books that prevent us from ever even coming close to ending a human life. But we champion this one because these particular human lives are unwanted. God, help us. 38 states have fetal homicide laws. If you are a pregnant woman and you're driving to an abortion clinic and a man hits you on the drive and kills the baby, he is jailed for fetal homicide. But if you had gotten where you were going, you would have paid a man to end the human life. What is wrong with us? This is obviously unethical. Obviously. The only reason anybody would champion this is out of deception. The enemy's lies. Wake up. 
Let God's word take the blinders off. Let his Holy Spirit bring conviction to your heart. We know, we know that babies born even just 21 weeks with a little bit of help can live outside the womb. We know that babies are due all of the rights to bodily integrity that you so passionately champion. That baby has bodily rights. What about her? What about her body? Champion her rights. She is the most defenseless and innocent person involved here. Even if she was conceived through rape. Even if she was conceived through incest. Even babies conceived through incest and rape are 100% innocent. And all of this, 100% human lives, just like the child whom Jesus held in this teaching. Just like you, an image bearer of God. We know this. We know this. And we have practices that are atrocious. And when a baby is partially born and out of the womb, stab the back of the skull and kill the child, assemble the pieces on a table to make sure we didn't miss any, and go back with a razor-sharp vacuum device to protect the mother from infection, God have mercy on us. We know that this is wrong. Be honest with yourself. Answer the Holy Spirit's calling on your heart to repent. This is your particular sin. The reason that you're mad at me is that you didn't feel convicted when I was preaching about Sodom and Gomorrah, but the Lord's convicting you now. Why can't I preach on this? Why can't I speak on this? Because it's your sin? Why is your sin off limits, but I can freely confess mine? We're all sinners here. We're all sinners here, and we all may abide in the grace and the forgiveness of God. We all may abide in this beautiful, beautiful grace that is Jesus' love for us. So acknowledge it. My pro-choice friend, can I just, okay, I grew up in a beach town. I was scared to death carrying my surfboard out into the water if I was going to step on a turtle egg. Because I was like, I was like a life sentence in prison right there if you step on a stupid turtle egg. Could you, in the meantime, I mean, you may not be ready to like just totally wave the pro-life flag with me, but could you at least extend to human babies the same compassion you extend to unhatched turtles? Please, at least treat them like animals. At least, at least treat them the way you treat animals. And don't stop there. Don't stop there. Follow the logic to its conclusion. They were humans all along just like you. I've always known this. Now, the, the pro-life cause doesn't just focus on abortion. It applies, I believe, to practices of euthanasia as well. Jesse, I'm tired of life, and I want to end it with dignity, and I don't want to go out like this. I don't want to suffer further. God has more to do through you. Okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a prophecy, and the first one's free. Right? Everyone in the sound of my voice, God has more to do through you. Please let, the, please let that baby cry. Please let us hear that baby's voice. Can we praise God for the sound of a baby's voice? <laughs> praise God. Mm. God has more to do through you. 
because you're in this room, that's how I know God has more to do through you. And the idea that we would live to a certain age and then just cruise off into the sunset and, and never have God do anything more through us, that is not a biblical construct. That's completely man-made. When I read my Bible, I don't know what's in yours, but in my Bible, I see people reach the pinnacles of their ministries in their 90s. We've been reading about Abraham. He was 99 years old when he stepped into everything that God had called him to do. God is not done with you yet. Your life is just as sacred as the unborn baby whose life we champion. Your life is just as sacred. God has more to do through you. Do not strip away the image of God from this earth. God has more to do through you, even in the midst of the pain, perhaps even because of the pain. God has more to do through you. Your life matters. You are worthy of the image of God. You are beloved just like the child in Matthew 18. That's how God feels about you. Please, please don't end your life prematurely. Please don't end your life prematurely. God has more to do through you. That's why you're here. Culturally, looking historically wide at what's happened as a result of the abdication of the sanctity of human life, I see things on the news that stem from this. I see mass shootings. And, and when I see these mass shootings, I, I mean, I'm gonna step down from the platform just a little bit, and my Bible's closed, because this is, this is a theory. This is not straight from the word of God. It's just plausible enough to allocate a few seconds of sermon time to share with you. When I see a mass shooter, especially one who commits suicide at the end, I just, I see Satan. I see Satan in that. I see Satan, the same spirit that inhabited Judas to betray Jesus and then kill himself. I see that same exact spirit at work in a mass shooter from some young kid who's grown up in a culture that doesn't respect human life. Now, we'll step back on the platform for this. Satan knows he is defeated in the end that Jesus wins in the end. And for this reason, he is writhing out on his way, on his way to his defeat, trying to destroy as many as he possibly can along the way. All of these are symptomatic of a culture that has utterly abandoned the sanctity of human life. I'm, I'm, struck, by something, uh, I'm struck by something that I see even in like the, the cartoons that come on for my kids. Right? I see ancient pagan gods. You're just like a part of regular entertainment today. All right, now don't, don't get up in arms, okay? I, I, I love the Avengers movies. They're great, okay? I'm not, I'm not gonna call for a boycott or anything like that. I'm just pointing out the way in which these ancient pagan practices are still sort of front of mind for us, even though some of them haven't really been worshiped corporately in a long, long time. Like, I'm like, I wonder if everybody knows what kind of atrocities were performed in the name of that pagan god that we're all cheering for. And I'm also, I'm also amazed at how in ancient cultures, like in Moab, where Ruth was from, by the way, the book of Ruth, she was from Moab. They worshiped Chemosh and they worshiped Molech. And part of worshiping Molech and Chemosh involved sacrificing your children in fire so that Chemosh or Molech would give you a better life, give you financial freedom, give you other things. And, and 
all the while knowing that like Chemosh doesn't exist, Molech doesn't exist. It's just a mask for the devil himself, that Satan is all too happy to not get nominal credit for the evil atrocities that he goads and tempts men into. And he is all too happy to not have his name roll on the credits for some act of evil. He is all too happy to fly under the radar and let some straw man, false god, name like Molech or Chemosh take all of the blame for what happens. So he is altogether too happy, even in a culture that professes not to believe in him, to have his satanic evil will done and then fly under the radar unaccused. I see a striking parallel between practices of abortion and the, and, the, and the disregard for the sanctity of human life and the ancient worship of Molech and Chemosh. I'll show you biblically what I'm, what I'm talking about here. Second Chronicles 33, verse 6, a young king, he was only 12 when he took the throne, revived this practice of pagan worship, that, that it was directly tied to the worship of Chemosh and Molech. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That's King Manasseh in 2 Chronicles 33, 6. So this is actually a king of Israel who brings this pagan practice over from some of those same nations whom God told the Israelites to drive out completely. They didn't drive them out completely, so their practices remained, and then Israel even picked them up. Church, do you see something profound here? Jeremiah 7, 31 further specifies what's going on in this valley of the son of Hinnom, which in a Hebrew sort of a Hebrew contraction is called Gehenna. That's the more efficient and short name for the valley of the son of Hinnom. Hinnom was a dude. His son had the valley on the outskirts of the old city of Jerusalem named after him. And there in the valley of Hinnom was the fires wherein people would go and sacrifice their babies for a better life, emulating the pagan practice of worshiping Chemosh and Molech. And then specifically within that valley was another spot known as Topheth. Here is Jeremiah 7, 31, speaking about Topheth within the valley of the son of Hinnom. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come to my mind, declares the Lord. Then another king, Ahaz, Later on, brought the practice back again. Second Chronicles 28, three. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Then this picture of hell itself as a place where bodies are burning constantly, actually is derived from that very spot on the outskirts of Israel, that raging dumpster fire on the outskirts of Israel called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, or Hinnom, or Gehenna, wherein is Topheth. That actually became the imagery upon which God drew to teach us about hell itself, that burning spot in the valley outside of Jerusalem where babies were burned, that is where we get the imagery for hell. Here's 2 Kings 23.10. This is where King Josiah brought an end to the practice by turning it into a dump. And instead of burning babies, the hope is people would burn refuse. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. 
Here's Isaiah 30, verse 33, drawing upon that same, this is one of the first occurrences where we see the idea of hell as this place that's associated with fire. Look at Isaiah 30, 30, verse 33, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king, it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. So it was not even an act of smiting per se, it was actually perfect justice. It was perfectly fair. God decreed to this king who, in, who instituted this valley wherein babies would be burned. He said, I'm gonna do to you exactly what you did to those babies. I'm gonna treat you perfectly fairly. And that's where we get the idea of people burning in hell. The word Gehenna is even the same word that Jesus used in this exact teaching that we've studied. In the Mark rendition of the same teaching, here's the wording that's used. It is better for you to enter life maimed than having two hands to go into Gehenna, into the fire that shall never be quenched. That's Mark 9, 43. Gehenna is this place where babies were burned, and that's the image of hell itself. And Jesus, in this same teaching, is telling us to rid our lives of anything that causes us to sin. In verse 10, he rightly says, woe to us for the things that bring temptation. It's better for us to cut this out completely. Abolish abortion completely. Repent, cut it out. It causes us to sin. And look at what we've done. Look at what we've done. We have demanded, championed with loud, passionate voices in protest, even, God help us, funded with tax dollars, the very practice after which hell is named. If you demand and champion and fund hell on earth, you're going to get it. So let us repent corporately. We have demanded hell, and look at what we have. We have reenacted Gehenna and funded it. We have brought back the ancient worship of Chemosh and Moloch, but Satan's all too happy that they don't get the credit for it. It's his will being done here. And wise, brilliant, loving people are championing this. It is obviously deception in Jesus' name. May the scales fall from our eyes. God, would you wake us up? Yeah, but Jesse, listen. Listen, I don't like abortion, okay? And, and I, I support a woman's right to choose. Cowardice. Look at Proverbs 24, 11. If you dare, because it's gonna put us all on the hook. Look at this. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We have championed hell, and we've got it. But God is able to bring revival. God is able to bring revival, and I believe that, it, I believe that this abolition that I hope for, I, I believe that what's first and foremost, what it really begins at is revival. I believe that it begins with a gospel revival with mass numbers of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. This particular sin, these particular sins of euthanasia, of, of abortion, these are just symptoms of the greater problem, which is sin. And the antidote to sin is the resurrection of Jesus. In Romans 10, 9, we see it plainly written. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so, if you are a man who has respected a woman's 
supposed right to choose, as though we actually have the right to do anything we want with our bodies. There's a reason prostitution is illegal. There's a reason there are speed limits. Come on now. There's a human life that is ended every time an abortion takes place, and you know this. Would you rise up, men, and defend your babies? Be silenced no longer. The enemy would love for you to remain silent on this and sideline you while your own son is cut into pieces on a table. No more. I cannot remain silent on this, and you cannot either. It is wrong. Furthermore, furthermore, men, don't you dare put the women in your life in such a situation that they feel like that's an option even. Would you, I'm gonna propose something radical again, all right? (laughs) Follow God's model for marriage and provide for that woman. Give her a good home in such a way that it doesn't even cross her mind that, that, that a positive pregnancy test is a beautiful cause to rejoice, not a cause to despair. So provide, men, provide. If you are pregnant today and you're scared and you don't have the bill, you don't have the money to cover the bills this is gonna incur and you don't know where you're gonna go and you're afraid of what people are gonna say I've got great news. I know about 2,000 people who would all love to meet your baby, and you're sitting among 500 of them right now. You are surrounded by love right now. Is that true, Highlands Community Church? I would so love to meet your baby and hold your baby right here on this stage if you were thinking about having an abortion, but the power of the gospel causes you to change your mind, would you come to us? Would you tell Highlands Community Church, we've studied the book of James. It says the religion that God finds as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So we're all on the hook to help you take care of your baby, have your baby, have your baby, and celebrate her life. Celebrate his life. Let that add to the church. Let's grow the church with a baby boom. Amen. I would be ecstatic to meet your baby. After the last service, I met a man who said, before I was saved, my girlfriend was pregnant. I suggested that she go have an abortion. She came back. She changed her mind. That was in the 70s. And today, I'm so grateful for the three grandchildren that have come through that baby. It wasn't just one life that was at stake. Who knows how many lives were saved as that man gave his life to Christ. Now, if you have had an abortion in the past, which is a church of our size, statistically, that must be the case. All right, look, I don't, I don't condemn you. I'm a sinner too. I'm a sinner too. The lead pastor of this church is a filthy sinner. Did you know that? But there's grace Jesus. And when I fall, he picks me back up again. And I strive to keep repentance in my life because he's Lord in my heart. And you likewise can be redeemed by the exact same grace that has redeemed this fallen sinner and redeems me when I fall over and over again. You can be redeemed by that same grace. And one day, one beautiful, glorious day, you could see your baby again. There's only one way. There's only one way. 
That's to give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus today. You see, Jesus in Matthew 18 just describes how he feels about your baby, but he describes how he feels about you too. So you, my fellow sinner, can be redeemed by the grace of Jesus, unafraid to see your baby again, because you're gonna see your baby in heaven where forgiveness is the law, man. All right, forgiveness and grace are the pervading system of justice in heaven. So there, in the grace and the forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, be reunited with your baby, be held in the Savior's arms, just like the child of Matthew 18, and abide in the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ, and be a part of the beautiful movement that is revival in the Pacific Northwest. I'm pro-life. I'm pro-your life, too. Would you give your life to Jesus today and be reunited with your child in heaven? Are you ready? Here's the moment where you give your life to Jesus. All right, as the Holy Spirit draws upon your heart, would you pray with me? God, I believe Jesus I believe him when he said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children such as these. I want to be one of your children, God. I want to be one of those children. I feel your Holy Spirit drawing on my heart right now. I may have had an abortion in the past, but God, I somehow sense that you forgive me. I sense that you have grace for me, that even despite that, you have love for me, that God, I might be with my baby in heaven one day because I'm yours. I'm your child. I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the full price for my sin, and I believe in my heart that Jesus rose again from the grave. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, say Jesus is Lord. Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.